The scripture reading for today is Matthew chapters 14, verses 53 through 58. When Jesus had finished telling these stories, he left the part of the country. He returned to Nazareth, his hometown. When he taught there in the synagogue, everyone was astonished and said, Where does he get his wisdom and his miracles? He's just the carpenter's son, and we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. All his sisters live right here among us. What makes him so great? And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. And then Jesus told them, A prophet is honored everywhere except his own hometown and his own family. And so he did only a few miracles there because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning and, and welcome to Christ Community. My name is, is Tim. And for those of you who have uh, who've been around a while, just a heads up. Um, Nate Nall, who normally leads worship with us, he uh, was his best friend's wedding yesterday and uh, has a peanut allergy and someone snuck peanuts into the food. And so our worship leader's in the hospital uh, right now. Um, he's doing better, doing well, but they need to keep him in there for... Uh, um, for observation, and so just a huge thanks to Nate and, and Tyler, who basically we changed the whole service this morning and called Nate, who thought he was going to get to sleep in this morning, and uh, we called him at 6.30 and was like, can you please lead worship? And he said yes, as he always does, because he's that kind of guy. So if you see him, say thanks, because I know what it's like when I suddenly get an hour less sleep. Um, I know how I act, and it's not how Nate acts. Uh, Nate is far more Christian than I am. And so, uh, so tell him thanks uh, if you see him, because it means a lot to, uh, to us. Um, but before we jump into this passage, um, which has been just fascinating to look at this week, um, let's pray and ask for, for God's help. <clears throat> Teach us your way, O Lord, and lead us on a level path. Teach us, O Lord, to follow your decrees, that we will keep them to the end. Give us understanding, and we will keep your law and obey it with all our hearts. Through Christ our Lord, we pray these things. Amen. Well, this past week was, was my birthday, and it started off really uniquely special because my kids, my two older sons in particular, were incredibly sweet to me. That I got up, my four-year-old son, Isaiah, in his kind of shy, timid voice, comes up to me first thing when he gets up and says, Happy birthday, Papa, you know, which just melts my heart. And then my son, Micah, for the first time ever unprompted, right, without me sitting there begging him to say these things, uh, said as I was getting ready to leave, Love you, Papa, miss you, Papa. And then he starts to get emotional and says, I want Papa, don't leave me, Papa, and repeats over and over again, I want Papa, I want Papa. And as, I, as I'm leaving, I grab my snack for the day, uh, my banana, and, and I turn around to go console him. As I turn around to console him, he, uh, he suddenly lights up with joy, and the tears all go away, and he's, he's staring at the banana in my hand, and he, he turns around like a little traitor and yells at his mom, I want banana, mama, I want a banana. And just like that, the sweet moment is gone, and my son forsakes me for a banana. It's, it's amazing how fast we human beings can abandon that which we love, that which our heart has, when something better comes along. I do it with material possessions. We do it in human relationships all the time. This morning, I would just ask the question, have you done that with Jesus? That it's incredible how fast we can abandon what we love. And, and have you done that to Jesus? Have you lost your wonder at him? Did he once capture your attention, but now other things are, are front and center? Whereas maybe he used to consume your thoughts, your desires, your dreams. Now he rarely interrupts your day. In fact, he rarely interrupts your week. 
But Jesus or his church, does it become more of a chore to you than a God whom you serve who has endless possibilities? This morning we, we come to a passage, a very short passage actually, that, that gives you one of the clearest pictures to where you know that you've encountered the real Jesus. Not, not a watered down, fake version, but the, the actual Jesus who walked and talked on earth. And the three reactions that the people who meet Jesus in this text have are, are first they're astonished at him, initially step back and wonder and awe at him, but they quickly then become discouraged because they find him ordinary. The wonder goes away, and finally they, they take offense at him, and they leave him behind, they abandon him. And so those three signs are, are three signs that you, you've really encountered Jesus. That one, you're astonished. You, you stood back and wonder at what he said or, or done. And two, there's maybe been a moment where you've been a little underwhelmed by his ordinariness. That's a word. And thirdly, he's offended you. Those are three signs you met the real Jesus. So let's look at the text and unpack those and ask ourselves, have you met Jesus as he really was and is? At first, if, has he ever filled you with, with wonder? In Matthew 13, it's sort of a transition moment in the gospel of, the, of Matthew that, that for the most part, Jesus, up through Matthew 13, has operated under the radar. A couple of weeks ago, I said, Jesus in his kingdom, it's more like a seed than a boulder. Right? Like a boulder drops onto the ground and it, it, it crashes in and it, it forces or it causes change through force and through power. But Jesus says, my kingdom is like a seed. It comes in. It's natural. It's organic. It's subtle. And even though the change it's introducing is far more... Um, thorough than a ch- the change of a boulder, it's, it's, it's more organic, it's more quiet. And that's how Jesus has operated. And yet, you can only do the sorts of things Jesus has been doing and saying the sorts of things Jesus has been saying and operating subtly and under the radar for so long that a confrontation with Jesus is coming. And it starts here in Matthew 13. He's returned to his hometown, to Nazareth. And he walks into his local synagogue where he grew up. And so for those of you who are kids, it would not be unlike you coming back to Christ community maybe in 10 or 15, 20 years and preaching a sermon for us. It's sort of what Jesus is doing here. He's going back to his hometown, to people he grew up with, to his own family. And he's preaching and teaching in the synagogue where he worshipped as a child. And so his childhood friends are there. His, the, the adults who helped raise Jesus are, are there. And he gets up to speak. And this is how... They initially respond to him and what he has to say. Verse 54. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? And we're told they're, they're astonished at Jesus. They step back in awe and wonder at who he is and what he's saying. They're hearing something from him that they have not heard before. And so I would ask you, have you had that sort of reaction to Jesus' teaching, where you've stood back in, in wonder and awe, and you see that Jesus is saying something that no one else has ever said? Now, my fear is, is for many of us in our culture, in the United States, where Jesus is, is almost constantly peddled out. It's easy for us to lose our wonder at Jesus, our awe at Jesus. Not too much unlike my son abandoning me for a banana. We abandon Jesus, because he's just not as interesting as he once maybe was. And I think it's even easier in our culture because, frankly, how Jesus gets described often in our culture is he, he's ground down into something that would astonish no one. 
That those on, on the left tend to reduce Jesus down to being simply a good, he has good moral teaching. That he, he says, love your neighbor. He says, love God. He, the Sermon on the Mount's a great piece of moral teaching. That essentially everything Jesus did and said is reduced down into be, be a nicer person. That's Jesus' essential message. Be a nicer person. But the reality is other, all religions say that. In fact, Jesus', Jesus specific moral teaching isn't all that different from most religion, most moral philosophy. And yet, the people who are listening to him here, who went to church every day or went to synagogue every week, who worshiped regularly, they understand Jesus is saying something they've never heard before. They're astonished at him. They sit back and, and wonder. This isn't a normal teacher that they're listening to. And most conservative Christians tend to reduce Jesus down to his benefits, right? So Jesus, if you believe certain things or you say certain things or, or uh, believe the right things, if you, you uh, point out the right things about Jesus, well, then you'll go to heaven. You'll, you'll get forgiven of your sins. If, if you believe and do the right things, then you get these benefits. But again, other religions teach that. They, they give you a system by which you can know that you're, you're saved. And that's all Jesus was saying and doing. No one would, would have stepped back in this moment and been astonished at what it is he's saying to them. So the question I had wrestling through this text is, what, what is so astonishing to them? Why do they step back from Jesus when he gets done teaching and they say of him, he's saying something we've never heard before? Well, I think two things. One, we've talked about a few times, so I won't belabor the point. But Jesus, both what he says about himself, the claims he makes about himself, and his life are a combination you just you don't find. right? He, on the one hand, he claims to be God and to demand worship. And on the other hand, he's found among the poor and the oppressed. He's touching lepers and healing them when he's not supposed to be. Right? On the one hand, he makes these outrageously high claims of himself. And in the next breath, he's doing something no one would have had the humility to do in their life. He, his claims and his life go together to make him astonishing. And I, so I think that's one. But, but secondly, and probably more important for this morning, this word astonish shows up in the Gospel of Matthew just about any time Jesus starts talking about salvation. Who, who's getting into heaven and who's not getting into heaven? That's when people step back and say, we're astonished. We're, they step back and wonder at what Jesus is saying. And for example, there, there's a, a moment in the Gospel of Matthew where a, a rich man comes up to Jesus, and he's clearly morally upstanding. He reads his Bible, he prays, he keeps the Ten Commandments. He's a good Man, he's blessed materially of God. Everyone, if you would create a poster child for someone who's going to heaven, this is the person. But he's racked by self-doubt. So he, he walks up to Jesus and he says to Jesus, how can I know that I'm going to heaven? How can I know that, that I have eternal life? And Jesus responds to that, that man by saying, me. <laughs> you have to sell all you have and you have to come and follow me. And the man, we're told, is, is sad and he leaves Jesus. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, essentially, even though that guy is morally upstanding, even though he keeps the Ten Commandments, even though he's the poster child of what a member of my kingdom should look like, he's not in my kingdom. And we're told the disciples step back and they're astonished at Jesus. And they ask the question, well, who, who can get in? If that guy's not in, who, who, who has a chance? The other place where this word astonished shows up is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus tells a couple of stories back to back about two trees and, and two houses. And if, if you walk up to, to the two trees, they look exactly the same. They, they both have fruit. They're both trees. But if you, if you grab fruit off of one of the trees and you take a bite, it's poisonous. It's disgusting. It will harm you. It's, it's bad. 
And similarly, there's, there's two houses, and you walk up to the two houses. They look the same, but underneath, what you can't see is there's foundations. One house is built on sand, one house is built on rock. And when the storm comes, the house that's built on sand is going to crash to the ground and not survive. And so even though the two trees look the same, the two houses look the same, underneath there's something happening that's invisible. That even though these, these can look good, they're not. And then Jesus finishes that teaching by looking at the crowd and saying to them, at judgment there are going to be people who come up to me and say to me, didn't, didn't we do great things for you, Jesus? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works? And, and Jesus says, I'm going to look at them and say, I never knew you. You looked the part. You looked like a great house. You looked like a good tree, but it, your, your fruit was poison. Your foundation was, you didn't know me. And we're told the crowds, when they hear Jesus say this, they're astonished. They stand back in wonder, mouths open and all. What is it? He's saying something they'd never heard before. So what is it? What is so astonishing about Jesus' teaching? Well, every major religion, every major world uh, philosophy, moral look at life is that there are good people and there are bad people. And good people do this, th- this list of things, and that, that's what makes them good. And bad people, they don't do that list of things. That's what makes them bad. And the good people are in the kingdom, the bad people are out of the kingdom. And what Jesus says is you can, have, you can have two people, and one person does all of the list, and they're good, and they're moral, and they're righteous, and they're, they're upright, and they look the part, and they're not in my kingdom. And then he goes up to people like Matthew, a tax collector, who is an oppressor of the poor. He's dishonest. He's cheated people out of money. He hasn't performed the good look, if you, the good list. If, if you look at his life, you're saying he's out of the kingdom. And Jesus goes up to Matthew and says to Matthew the same thing he says to that rich young man. If you want eternal life, follow me. And Matthew follows him, and Jesus says, you're in. Though what's so astonishing about Jesus' kingdom is that you can be a good person and not be in his kingdom. That essentially, Jesus is saying, no one can enter my kingdom, but it's available to anybody. You can't, you can't earn your way into my kingdom, but you can't disqualify yourself out of my kingdom. Right? How can you not be astonished at that? No one else has ever said anything like that. That tension of both going up to the most morally upright people and saying, you can't come in, and going up to the most morally just disreputable people and saying, come on in, no no." Religion operates like that, except for Jesus. And that's why the crowds stand back. And they're astonished. They're they're in wonder. They're in awe at what Jesus is saying. They've never heard this before. And so I would say, if if you're someone who says Jesus, Christianity, is just like every other world religion, it teaches essentially the same thing. There's a bit of truth to that, and the the, the moralities look the same. But Jesus is saying something radically different. And the crowd, his hometown, his own family understands that. Everyone who heard Jesus understood that, which is why astonishment and wonder was the normal reaction when Jesus started talking and teaching. And if you haven't had that reaction to his teaching, you may have just sat back and wonder at him. If you haven't seen that Jesus is saying something no one else has said, then you have not met the real Jesus. You've only met the grounded down manila Jesus who our culture peddles out that just says, be a nice person and you can go to heaven and live with your family forever. And Jesus did not say that. And if, if you have a Jesus you're not in wonder at, it's not the real Jesus. So that's the first sign that you've met the real Christ. The, se- the second is that you, you find him ordinary. All right, this is what happens. So they, they sit back, they're astonished at Jesus' teaching, but then they start asking questions in verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas or, or Jude? 
And are not all his sisters with us? What, what, where did, did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. The reality of, of our Messiah, Jesus, is that he has spent most of his life in an obscure place doing a job anyone else could have done. Working blue-collar construction, carpenter, building things with his hand. He had no special education. He lived in a forgotten part of the world, and for 30 years, no one knew who he was. He had brothers. He had sisters. He was too ordinary for the people around him. And maybe if you grew up Catholic, it's a little confusing to you that Jesus had brothers and he had sisters. What does that mean? And, 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 and as you can read in the Gospel of Matthew and there are other places, it becomes clear that, that Mary and Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, had children after uh, Jesus was born. And so Jesus had brothers and, and sisters, and we see some of them named here. And so Jesus, he was ordinary. He entered this world just like you and I entered this world because some poor woman named Mary went through an incredible amount of pain to, to get him here. He had brothers and sisters that he probably chased around with a stick and played with. He had a job that most likely he didn't want to go to some days. He probably dealt with rude and rough customers. Most of all, he was a single man in a culture that prized marriage and having children, which meant he knew what it was, what it was like to be disappointed and to feel alone. He wrestled with the things you and I wrestle with. He was a very ordinary person. And that's why Jesus' friends and family, they look at Jesus and they say, you're too ordinary. We know too much about you. You're a carpenter. You have brothers and sisters. You cannot be the Messiah. And they take offense at him. So I'm going to dip a little bit into point three and points here in point two because they take offense at Jesus before his ordinariness. And I want to stop and unpack that because the reality is many people take offense at Jesus for many Different reasons, and, and once we, you take offense at Jesus, it's easy, to, it's easy to write him off, which is what they do here. They see something in Jesus, they find unattractive, and they write him off and leave him. And so what might cause you to, to be tempted to write Jesus off? What might cause you to take offense at him? That would it be because of, of lousy Christians? I understand that. I've met a few lousy Christians myself. I've looked in the mirror at one. And yet I would encourage you, don't write Jesus off because of lousy Christians. I mean, remember Jesus himself said, there are people who think they're following me, and when we get to judgment, I'm going to say to them, I didn't know you. You were not a Christian. So don't reject Jesus because there are people who don't represent him well. Or think of it like this. Two years ago, I went to Denver. It was the first time I had been to Denver in eight or nine years. And I was excited to see a mountain. I mean, I grew up in the Midwest, Indiana, Illinois, um, and now here in Kansas, right? So we don't have mountains anywhere near us. So I, anytime I can see a mountain, I get excited. When I see a hill, I get excited. It's just great. And so I fl- I'm flying out to Denver. I'm really excited about this. And when I get there, it's, it's overcast and it's foggy. I mean, it just looks disgusting. And all you can see is the flat part of Denver. That's where we stayed. And for three days, it was overcast, it was cloudy, and it was foggy. And I didn't see a mountain for three whole days when I was there. And I could have easily walked away from that experience and said, had I not been to Denver before, and said, Denver's flat. It's just like Kansas. Right? John from Denver, he's full of it. The Rockies don't exist. Right? It's not as beautiful as people make it out. But the reality is there were clouds covering the beauty. And I would just say, if there are lousy Christians who have clouded the beauty of who Jesus is to you, to, to wait for the clouds to break. Because the, the beauty's there. The mountains are, are there. You, just, you have to let the clouds break to see past the brokenness 
that's so often a part of, of the church. He's behind the clouds. So wait, wait for him. Or have you written Jesus off because he said something that offends you? Something you can't accept. And again, I understand this. When, when it comes to how we in our culture view um, pride or money, sexuality, when it comes to how we view greed, Jesus has very different things to say than what we tend to say. And when we take offense in, in that moment, it's, it's, I know a lot of people write Jesus off. and oh, He's backwards. The Bible's backwards. We can't trust it. And, and we know more than Jesus knows that. But before you write him off, I would just encourage you just to at least take a pause and, and consider this. That maybe the, the reason you're missing what Jesus is saying, or, or you see Jesus, what Jesus is saying and you take offense to it, is because the clouds, are, they're obscuring the beauty behind them then maybe Jesus has a better vision for life. And your first glance at what he is saying, you're not seeing the whole picture. Let's take this text, for example. The reason that Jesus' friends write him off is because he's too ordinary for them. He has brothers, he has sisters. The Messiah is supposed to be a powerful figure who comes in with armies and takes out Rome militarily and sets up a new reign whereby God's people rule from Jerusalem. But Jesus instead comes, he's born, he's a carpenter in a normal family, in an obscure part of the world. And he lives an ordinary life. And so his, his friends and his families, they look at him, they're like, no way you can be the Messiah. You're too ordinary. You don't measure up. You're not a king. You have no power. You can't deal with Rome. You're not the Messiah. And so they can't worship him because he's too ordinary. But, but those of us on the other side of, of that, do you, do you know why Jesus was so ordinary? Why he chose to live his life like this? The New Testament answers this question in, in many different ways, but my favorite is Hebrews 4. And so I'm going to read that, that for us. This explains why Jesus was so ordinary. That we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. Do you know why Jesus lived such an ordinary life? So he could look at you and I and, and say to us, rightfully, that we can never say to him, never, that he does not understand what, what we're going through. That's true of other religions. You can look at God and say, you're on your throne in heaven. You, you haven't walked in my shoes. You don't know what I'm experiencing. You haven't been through what I'm going through. And, and they can rightfully level that, level that charge. You, we, you and I can't. He entered into the ordinary mess of life. He understands how hard and difficult family is. His own family rejects him and leaves him here. He understands how hard it is to be different and to feel alone. He was a single man in a culture that valued marriage and kids, and he was different. He understands what it's like to bury someone you love. The most likely his stepfather, his earthly father, Joseph, died early in Jesus' life. That's why he's not mentioned at the end of the Gospels. True tradition says that. So Jesus knows what it's like to bury his own father. But Jesus is so ordinary so that he can say to you and me, I know. I've walked your shoes. I've been to where you are and I can help walk you through it. And yet, that's the very reason these people look at Jesus and say, no, and write him off. 
One of the most beautiful reasons I find for following Jesus, that he knows what my struggles are like because he's walked through them himself, is the very reason they write him off. They missed the beauty. The clouds overwhelmed them, and they didn't wait. They wrote him off. And what if the reason that you might be tempted to write Jesus off would be making the same mistake? What if you're like me in Denver, waiting for the clouds to break? It looks just ugly and flat. There's no mountains. There's no beauty. Would you wait for Jesus? Give him a fair hearing. I see people take offense to him and write him off all the time without really hearing him, without really pushing past the brokenness, pushing past the clouds, pushing past all the noise to get to the real voice of the Christ of Jesus who spoke you into existence. But when you break through to that voice and you hear the real Jesus, he will offend you. There's no getting around it. And look with me at verse 57. And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And the word offense there is, is where we get our English word for scandal. That Jesus, is, he's, he's an offense and he's a scandal to his hometown, which is why they reject him and leave him. And most people, when they encounter Jesus as an offense or as a scandal, they assume that's a, a problem. Right? So many books have been written, many denominations have completely changed their theology to make Jesus non-offensive. So that when we encounter him, when we encounter the offense, we want to domesticate him. We want to make him palatable. We, we want him safe. But that's, that's, not, that's not Jesus. You're not meeting the real Jesus if he's not offended you. It is inescapable that he will offend you for, for three reasons that, that are in this text. The, the first, that, that you need the whole of gospel, the whole of gospel, the gospel of Matthew to understand is that Jesus, Jesus offends everyone who meets him in the gospel of Matthew. There's no one in the gospel of Matthew Jesus meets who's not offended by him. It's, his own family's offended here. His hometown's offended. His own disciples are offended. In the end of gospel of Matthew, um, it, when Jesus is going to the cross, just before he goes to the cross, he looks at his disciples and says to them, on this night, you will all fall away because of me. And that word fall away, it's the same word here for offense. So you, disciples, you are going to be offended by me tonight. You're going to find me a scandal and you're going to run away from me tonight. Jesus' family, his hometown, the, his disciples were offended by him. And if you encounter him as he really is, you will absolutely be offended by Jesus. There's no escaping it. So Jesus offends everyone he, he meets, but, but just imagine the flip is true, that Jesus, he doesn't offend you in any way. Just sort of think out the implications of that for, for a second. Imagine you saying something like, I have, I've encountered the Son of God, the creator of the universe. I know God personally, and he agrees with all of my opinions. It's okay to laugh at that, that's, right? That, that's a little problematic if you've met God and God is, is kind of you. That, that if God is wholly other, other than us, of course he's going to see life differently than us. So when, Jesus, when you get to a place in the Bible where Jesus offends you, don't be discouraged in that moment. You're meeting the real Christ and enter in there. Don't write him off. And when that day comes, and it will come, please do two things, two things that I almost, I almost never see people do when they're offended by Jesus. But first, talk to, talk to a Christian. 
a mature Christian, especially a Christian who's gone through the very offense you're walking through. Because whatever it is that most offends you about Jesus, I promise you there's a Christian who was once offended, obscured by the clouds, and now lives on the mountain. Talk to someone who's walked through that before you write Jesus off. And secondly, I would say don't miss the forest for the, the trees. The question that you, that you and I should always be asking is not, is Jesus teaching about this right or, or wrong? The, the real question, the question we should always be asking is, is Jesus' tomb empty? That if, ultimately, if Jesus was snuffed out on a cross by human beings, then who cares what he has to say about judgment, about sexuality, about pride? If Jesus died on a cross and that was it, I don't care what he thinks about anything. But if his tomb is empty, and even though human beings tried to snuff him out, tried to put him on a cross and crucify him and end his life, and that didn't stop him, and he's stronger than death itself, then, then he probably knows more about pride than me. He probably knows about, more about greed than me. He probably knows more about sexuality than me. And if, if his tomb is empty, he has the right to offend, the right to look us in the eye and say, I know more about this than you do. And so if you have met Jesus, the real Jesus, he's offended you. He offended everybody. And in that moment, be, be encouraged, enter into that, because you're not going to escape his scandal. You can't. Because ultimately, secondly, it's, it's not just that Jesus offends everyone in the Gospel of Matthew with, with himself, but, but secondly, it's, it's built in the very nature of his message. The very Gospel itself is an offensive message. That what makes Jesus' kingdom so astonishing is what is so offensive. Right, remember what I said that the central message of Jesus' kingdom is, is that nobody can earn their way into the kingdom, but anybody can get in. No one's good enough, but it's available to anybody. And what Jesus is essentially saying is that there is that you and I, we are so flawed. It doesn't matter today. If you start keeping all your promises, read your Bible, do all the morally upright things, you keep the Ten Commandments, you pray all the time, you do everything you're supposed to do, you can do all of those things, and it's, you're still not good enough to get into his kingdom. All, you do all the list, and you won't get in. And then at the, in the same breath, Jesus will go to someone who's completely morally less respectable than I am, like completely more morally offensive than me, and he'll say to that person, hey, you come in. Right? Isn't that a little offensive? He looks at you and me and he says, You're t- you'll never get in. And then he goes to people you and I would look down on and he says, hey, you, come on in. Just trust me. I mean, offense is built in to that message. And it raises the question, how? How can Jesus say both? You'll never be good enough to get into my kingdom. And yet at the same time say, but my kingdom is available to anyone. How is that possible? And it's because Jesus, Jesus is an offense. That's who he is, his core to, to what his life was about. That Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, sat down to write to one of the churches he was a part of. And, and he wanted to explain to them what God was doing through Jesus on the cross. And this is how he explained it, through quoting the Psalms. Here's what Peter wrote. He said, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a stone of offense. But that word offense there is the same word in Matthew 13. It's a, Jesus sees a stone of scandal, a stone of offense. And so when Jesus came to the end of his life, he was taken out of the city, to the place where the garbage went, he was nailed to two wooden beams, which was uh, a, a designed 
specifically to shame human, human beings, to put them in the most offensive, disgusting death possible. And they raised Jesus up and as, as an example to all to say, look at, look at that offense, look at that scandal, don't be like that. And yet it's at that very moment when Jesus was driven out of the city to the garbage dump, when he was put on that cross, it's at that very moment he can say both, you'll never get into my kingdom, you'll never be good enough, and yet also say, but come on in anyway. That if you're going to meet Jesus, you have to meet him at the place of offense, at the cross, where he can say to you, you'll never be good enough, but you're, you're welcome. You'll never earn your way in, but, but my kingdom's available to you. That you will not know Jesus without scandal, without an offense. And if you try to know him in any other way, you're not knowing the real Jesus. The Jesus who was so offensive to the people around him, they put him on a cross to shame him and his followers. And yet it's that place where the kingdom is made available to you. Irrespective of how good you are, no matter how offensive or shameful or broken you are, it's you meet him at the place of offense and you're in. You can, you can join his kingdom if you trust him. So Matthew 13, it ends with Jesus' family rejecting him, taking offense at him. But church tradition tells us that's not the end of their story. As Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, and a number of his other family members worshipped their brother as God. I'll ask that question again. What would it take for you to worship your brother as God. Whatever it was, James and Jude, they saw it. And their initial offense at Jesus gave way to worship. And the kingdom they could never join became theirs. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us to see Jesus, the stone of stumbling, crucified, an offense, and yet our cornerstone. God, would you help us to see, even though he was rejected, he was chosen by you. That he was precious because through his rejection, he makes his kingdom available to us. And help us to believe in him that we might never be put to shame. Amen.